0: Good morning, Grace. I'm Kenny, one of our elders here. It's my joy to, to open the Word with you right now in Genesis 24. So turn there. You know, I, I thought maybe third service we should do this. We should have been holding our Bible as we just sang that song. I, I picked up my Bible getting ready to preach, and I was singing that song thinking, we, what we just sang, if your mind and heart was engaged with the words, which I hope it was. I hope you weren't on autopilot. We place a ton of expectation on what's about to happen in this service. As we open up the Bible and read it, we expect that God speaks to us through it. And we just ask God to do a number of huge things in our life as he speaks to us through his word. And I want us to think about one in particular as we come uh, uh, into Genesis 24 this morning. And it's this, it, we, we, it was kind of woven throughout the song, but it was a, a generally a prayer saying, God, would you help us live for something bigger than ourselves? Help us, God, to not just live for our own little kingdom, what we're doing, our plans, our to-do list, but God, would you save us from that and, and help us to live for something bigger? We were singing, asking that when we sang this line, for example. Speak, O Lord and fulfill in us all your purposes for your glory. Implication there is that God has purposes for us, for you individually, but for us as a church collectively. He has plans and purposes, namely for his glory, to glorify himself, for the world to see, for people to learn of his greatness and his grace and his love and his authority through us. How? Well, through the effect that he has on us the gospel has on us christ's love at the cross and his resurrection hope has on us the way it transforms us the way it makes us more like jesus and less like the world and then as we move out into this world the the way that that affects our relationships the way that the world sees our love for one another in the church the way the world sees us serving and putting others' needs before our own with one another but outside these walls, that God's greatness would be displayed. He has purposes for us. And we just saying, God, fulfill in us those purposes. So that's a prayer of saying, God, help me to make my life uh, part of your bigger plans. Or it was in this line. Speak, O Lord, and help us grasp the heights of your plans for us. Think about that line for a second. The heights of plans implies that my tendency, our tendency, is to get preoccupied or consumed with smaller plans. That doesn't mean unimportant plans or bad plans, but smaller plans. My bucket list, my aspirations, my ambitions, my to-do list, my goals, which many of those can be fine, but this prayer is saying, God, help me to grasp that you have some plans for me, for us as a church, that are bigger than that, that are more exciting even than that, and in such a way that I would want my plans to enfold into your plans. I was thinking about my son Levi this week, who's 10, who loves Legos, and who has this massive bin now of Legos. Over the years, parents, you know how this works. You give them a kit that's supposed to make one particular thing, but eventually that thing gets broken up, and then you have this giant just bin, which is really better. Legos should just be make whatever you think up in your brain, right? That's what the Lego movie was about. Anyway, spoiler alert. But he, he'll get in his room and for an hours he'll be digging in that thing and he'll be building whatever the latest thing he's fascinated with. There's this thing in Wreck-It Ralph called Side Bugs and I don't even remember what it looks like but this whole week he's been building Side Bugs with Legos and when he's building his thing, anything that we try to call him to is just an interruption from his mission. Whether it's good thing like dinner, like noodles that he loves... Just a minute. Or if we're calling him, hey, we're going to have a movie night. We got the movie all queued up. We're going to sit on the couch and have ice cream and a movie, something that he w- would want to do. But just a minute. We could be trying to get everyone in the car to go to the beach. But he's right now in that moment. Just just a minute. Any other calling is an interruption. And that can be us, right? With our life, our little kingdom that we're building, God speaking in and saying, I've got some plans that are bigger than that and might feel like, hold on a minute. God might be speaking to you this morning and wanting to interrupt some of those plans or at least get you to think, am I considering how my plans fit into God's greater plans for you individually and for us as a church? And notice one last thing in this song, that that it's us. These could all be individual prayers. God... um, uh, help me uh, fulfill in me your purposes for your glory, and that's a good prayer. Or uh, help me grasp the heights of your plans for me. But suddenly, when we're in a room together as Grace E.V. Free Church and we're singing these as collective we sorts of prayer requests, our assumption is God has purposes and plans for us to accomplish together that we think of ourselves as a we as a family, the family of God, and as an army of Christ here in La Mirada to reach the surrounding neighborhoods and cities. He does. That our lives are are about something bigger. Abraham and Sarah, by the time we're here in Genesis 24, Abraham, Sarah's now died as we get to chapter 24, Abraham and Sarah had clearly come to understand their lives like this that God had some blessings for them in their lifetime, but largely they were to be a part of some blessings that were going to come long after they were gone. Hebrews 11 says that they died in faith, not having received the things promised. They received some of the things promised. But largely, they didn't, having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. That's how Abraham and Sarah had come to see their lives. And that's what in this song we're praying, that God would help us come to see our lives. There are some blessings for us in this life that God has for us, but there are also blessings he wants to be, uh, us to be part of bringing about in the world that might happen long after we're gone until Jesus returns. Are you open to that? an image that's been in my mind throughout this whole Abraham series in Genesis is that moment that God took him outside and and, and, and looked up at the night sky and could see all those stars, and God said, so shall your offspring be. I've thought about it a number of times because, folks, we were in that scene Grace E.V. la Mirada was there. Some little cluster of stars as he looked up at all that were one little corner here of, family, of, of, of the families of the earth that are going to be blessed through Abraham. We were represented up there. Praise God for that. And he wants to use us to, to, to reach more people. There's more stars in that sky that Abraham saw that represent people in this world that haven't been blessed through Jesus in the gospel yet. He wants to use us to do that. All right, but I'm getting ahead of myself. That's the second point this morning, is how does Genesis 24 encourage us, by the char- about the character of God in a way that then spurs us on with confidence, to live as God's church for His purposes in our generation? That's the end game, all right. But first point is this: We've got to deal with Genesis 24. Let me turn there. Genesis 24 is the longest chapter in Genesis by a long shot. It's really long. And it's just one story that's really answering one question. And this is my first point. If all the families of the earth are to be blessed through Abraham, at this point in history, when we open up Genesis 24, then Isaac needs a bride. That's the the main point of the story. That's what the story tells us that God accomplished. At that point, his purpose was Isaac needs a bride. If all the rest of the promises that are going to be fulfilled through Abraham are going to come to be, Isaac needs a bride. And I think that the author, I've, I've wondered, why does he take so long to tell this story? It's way, it takes almost 10 minutes to read out loud if you just read it at, at one sitting. Why does he take so long to tell this story that bottom line is just Isaac got a bride? I think it's because he wants us to understand and see God's fingerprints of his faithfulness and his sovereignty, his divine providence over this. This wasn't just a coincidence. This wasn't just good fortune that Isaac ended up with just the right bride. But God, who makes promises and keeps all his promises, also accomplishes all his purposes. He's faithful and sovereign. And telling the story this way helps it be inescapable for us. And I think this story, at the end of the chapter, the servant recounts all this to Isaac first. And I think throughout Isaac's life, this story would have been one of the example stories he would have thought of to encourage him to trust that in his generation, God would be faithful and sovereign to, carry, uh, to, to accomplish all his purposes. And then later as Israel would have this story in the future generations as they entered the land that was filled with all these Canaanite nations and as then they were occupying the land and living under God's kings or later on as they wandered from God and God judged them and sent them into captivity. At every point, this story is a reminder that in each generation, God keeps all his promises and accomplishes all his purposes. And the story functions the same way for us. It reminds us the same thing. In our generation, God will keep all his promises and accomplish all his purposes. So let's look at the story. It's got four major scenes as it unfolds. Scene number one. Abraham commissions his oldest, most trusted servant to travel back to his home country and find a bride for Isaac. Verse one. Now Abraham was old, well advanced in years, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. So stop. Here's the context as the story begins. Abraham is really old. By the way, it's pointed out a lot of times throughout Genesis how old Abraham is. He just keeps getting older. He was old when this thing started. But now he's well advanced in years, and Sarah has died. And they've buried her. And her tent is empty. That's significant. Here's the line of promise. All these blessings are going to come through. And right now, at this point, there's no mother in the line of promise. That's a problem. That's a dead end. Isaac is not married. But God has been faithful so far. It says that, verse 1, the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. We're going to hear later in the story all the wealth that God had given to to Abraham. He'd really made Abraham into something. So he would blessed Abraham to to a large degree and made his name great. But there's no mother in Israel at this point. That's the problem. Verse 2, Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household who had charge of all he had, Put your hand under my thigh. Just a pause. I'm I'm thankful that our custom for securing promises from people is a handshake now. It's much much nicer. Anyway, um, put your hand under my thigh that I may make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and earth. Stop for a second. Even the title that he refers to God right here, the two titles are underscoring where his confidence is. Make me, I want to make you swear by the Lord, all caps, Yahweh, the, God, the covenant-making God who promised to be the God of Abraham and Isaac and in the future Jacob and to the ends of the earth. So he's the faithful God, but also the God who's the God of heaven and earth, the creator, sovereign God who made everything and is at work in everything. So even here, faithfulness and sovereignty. Swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell but will go to my country and to my kindred and take a wife for my son Isaac. You know, there could have been an easier way for Isaac to get a bride, right? They're they're not in just an empty desert. There's nations all around, there's cities all around. Um, We've interacted, he's interacted with some of these cities and some of these kings in the previous chapters. Um, He didn't have to go anywhere. He had a lot of money and wealth, and that was all going to Isaac. He was a pretty good catch. Abraham could have just picked someone out right then, and that could have worked out great. Married into some other family in the area, uh, and then maybe even gotten more land and and connection to the land that God had promised his offspring to have, but Abraham doesn't go that route. God's made it clear to Abraham that he intends his offspring alone to dwell in this land and that one point in the future, God is finally going to bring judgment on these nations that were wicked in many ways and he was patiently withholding his judgment. And so Abraham knows this promise and he, so he says, no, 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 I want you to go back to my home country and I want you to find a bride from there. So he commissions his servant to travel hundreds of miles to find a wife. Verse 5. The servant said to him, Perhaps the woman may not be willing to follow me to this land. Must I then take your son back to the land from which you came? So, this is the first of a few in this story, what if kind of moments of, I don't know, possible obstacles that might cause a failed mission. So, here's the first one. He thinks, Man, that's a hard ask. I'm hundreds of miles away. I'm gonna ask some young woman and her family to release her to come all the way back hundreds of miles and marry someone she's not met just based on a promise. I mean, what if that's a deal breaker, Abraham? Can we make a plan B? If that doesn't work, what if I just bring Isaac there? And Abraham says, no, verse six. He says, see to it that you do not take my son back there. That's not where God has called us. That's not where the promises are gonna take place. Don't do that. You don't need a plan B. Stick with plan A, verse 7. Abraham is totally confident. He says, the Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and the land of my kindred, who spoke to me and swore to me, your offspring, will, I will give this land, he will send his angel before you. And you shall take a wife for my son from there. He's confident. God's faithful. He's sovereign, he will lead, and he will cause this this mission to find a bride to be successful. And then he says, he gives the assurance to the servant, listen, if the the woman is not willing to follow you, then you'll be free from this oath of mine, only you must not take my son back there. He He grants this concession, but Abraham doesn't believe that's gonna happen. He believes this is gonna be successful. So verse nine, the servant acts in faith. He puts his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and he swore to him concerning this matter. I'll do what you ask. He doesn't have Abraham's full measure of confidence, but this servant is, is a beautiful uh, character, in the kind of minor character in the Bible. I love this guy. As the story goes on, he is walking by faith. He is trusting in the God that Abraham is confident in. He's been with Abraham and Sarah a long time. No doubt he's seen many other times where God made a way when it looked like a dead end, and, and here he goes. He, he's walking by faith. And he's going to go do this thing. And it's grounded in God's faithfulness and his providence. His faithfulness, Abraham said, the God who swore to me, he keeps his promises. And it's grounded in his pro- divine providence. He will send his angel before you, and you shall bring back a bride. Scene two. The Lord leads this servant right to Abraham's grand niece. Verse 10, the servant took 10 of his master's camels and departed, taking all sorts of choice gifts from his master. And he arose and he went to Mesopotamia to the city of Nahor. So there's a glimpse of Abraham's wealth, just a little bit of it, 10 camels and all this, all these choice gifts we're gonna see later, gold and jewelry and, and, and some really fine things. He's going locked and loaded to get a bride, right? He is He is not you know, taking any chances here. But when he arrives here, verse 11, here's another potential obstacle. He, I think he begins to think, Okay, how am I gonna know? How am I gonna figure out who the Lord has chosen for Isaac? It seems that God has a plan for a bride, but how am I supposed to figure that out? So verse 11, it says, he made the camels kneel down outside the city by the well of water at the time of evening when women go out to draw water. And he said, he prays really, O Lord, God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today. And show steadfast love to my master Abraham. Behold, I'm standing by the spring of water. Um, uh, sorry, and the women, uh, daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Verse 14, let the young woman to whom I shall say, please let down your jar that I may drink, and who shall say, drink, and I will water your camels. Let her be the one whom you've appointed for your servant Isaac. And by this, I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to my master. So he's got faith, but he sort of lays out this test in his prayer. And, and Lord, if you do this, that'll be the indicator. That'll be the green light. I wanna pause for a minute just to point out I don't think stories like this are intended to become normative, prescriptive for the way we make every decision that we step forward uh, in life with. I don't think that normally that God intends for us to wait until he lights up the next square on the yellow brick road and it's all clear and then I step on it. Until then, I do nothing even though we do at times see stories and situations where God leads in some unique ways and he graciously answers according to this servant's prayer. But in other words, guys, I wouldn't recommend this as a how to find a bride prescription from the Bible. That's not why Genesis 24 is here. Did someone clap? Okay, so that's right. So, in other words, guys, I wouldn't say, you know, show up at Starbucks tomorrow morning and stand by the counter and then pray. Okay, God, I'm here by the counter. All the women are lining up for their lattes and La Mirada. Let the one to whom I say, I forgot my wallet, and she says to me, That's okay, I'll get your coffee and I'll go gas up your car while you're drinking it. That will be the one. Bad idea. Laura, don't use that on your uh, uh, dating coach uh, Instagram there, right? But if that did happen, I would say put a ring on that finger, right? (laughs) Anyway. But not, we're not supposed to say this is the way to find a bride, right? But here he is, we should commend the servant because he's walking by faith. He doesn't know and he has this confidence that God's angel is going to go before him and lead him. And so he's praying and saying, Lord, Lord, lead me. And God graciously designates the, the appointed bride according to the conditions of his prayer. And what's amazing, if you look at verse 15, the next verse, the implication is, God was already going before him. It says, before he'd finished speaking, he's still getting out his prayer of God if you, and Rebekah's already on her way, it says. Behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother. Just pause, that's great storytelling. The servant doesn't know this yet. We just got let in on it. This woman is Abraham's grandniece. He doesn't know this So she came out with her water jar on her shoulder. The young woman was very attractive in appearance, a maiden whom no man had known. So she was marryable, right? (laughs) She went down to the spring and filled her jar and came up. And the servant ran to meet her and said, please, give me a little water to drink from your jar. And she said, drink, my lord. All right, this is looking good. And she quickly let down her jar upon her hand and gave him a drink. There's some suspense here, all right? There's the first part, but he's drinking his water and Maybe thinking, okay, how about the camel's part? Well, verse 19, when she'd finished giving a drink, she said, I will draw water for your camels also until they've finished drinking. So she quickly emptied her jar in the trough and ran again to the well to draw water, and she drew for all his camels. Why am I doing this with my hands? Well, it already said that you had to go down some steps to the well to the spring to get water, and then she came back up. And so what she did was a huge thing right here. This was not some small little test. How many camels are with him? Ten. Anyone have an idea of how much a camel can drink? I read online about 25 gallons a good healthy camel can drink. Ten camels, 25 gallons each, they've just traveled in from who knows where. The springs down there, she's got a jar, that can't hold more than about three gallons of water. Do the math, this is like 80 or 90 trips back and forth to to water all these camels. This wasn't an arbitrary test, I think, that the servant came up with in his mind. He thought, you know, if a woman would do that, she is obviously kind, hospitable, generous, hardworking, doesn't skip leg day,
1: <laughs> right?
0: She's, she would be a, a great bride. But she does it, and so while it's happening, verse 21, the man gazed at her in silence. That doesn't speak very well for the servant. He, he just stood there the whole time. But anyway, gazed at her in silence to learn whether the Lord had prospered his journey or not. So um, you might think, well, he should just get it right now. Clearly this is going to happen. God just answered his prayer. But he still knows he's got to ask the family, and they just may say no. So he's, he's waiting to see if the Lord has prospered the journey. Verse 22. When the camels had finished drinking, the man took a gold ring weighing a half shekel and two bracelets for her arm weighing 10 gold shekels, so some serious bling, and gives it to her and said, please tell me whose daughter you are. Is there room in your father's house for us to spend the night? She said to him, Here it comes. Well, I'm the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, whom she bore to Nahor. And she added, We have plenty of both straw and fodder and room to spend the night. The servant's jaw just drops not just his his jaw, his head. Verse 26, the man bows his head and he worshiped the Lord and said, blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, (laughs) who's not forsaken his steadfast love and faithfulness toward my master. As for me, the Lord has led me in the way to the house of my master's kinsmen. End of scene two. So what Abraham was confident of in scene one, that God would send his angel before and, and, and direct him right to, to the one appointed, here it materializes right before him as he prays and watches expectantly. God does make it clear, is seeming to make it clear. So now scene three, he's still gotta ask the family. So in this longest scene here, the Lord actually ends up granting the servant favor and Rebekah's family says yes. Let's read. Verse 28. Verse 28. Then the young woman ran and told her mother's household about these things. Rebekah had a brother whose name was Laban. And Laban ran out toward the man to the spring. Here's why he ran. Verse 30. As soon as he saw the ring and the bracelets on his sister's arms and heard the words of Rebekah, his sister, thus the man spoke to me, he went to the man. And behold, he was standing by the camels at the spring. So our very first glimpse of Laban in Genesis is that, that money motivates this guy. He might be a little bit greedy here. And as if some of you know the story later on with Jacob going to find a wife back in the, in the, in the land again, Laban pulls some shady things. So the first glimpse here is he's, he's a little bit of a greedy guy and he runs out when he sees the jewelry, which is gonna work out okay for Isaac, actually. Verse 31, He says, Come in, O blessed of the Lord. Why do you stand outside? For I've prepared the house and a place for the camels. So the man came into the house and unharnessed the camels and gave straw and fodder to the camels. And there was water to wash his feet and the feet of the men who were with him. And then food was set before him to eat. But he says, I will not eat until I've said what I have to say. First things first. So Laban says, Speak on. He said, I am Abraham's servant. In other words, I'm Nahor's brother. I'm the servant of your, your family here, he says. The Lord has greatly blessed my master. Remember him? He left like 62 years ago off for some land after a promise. Well, here's what hap- has happened. He's become great. The Lord's given him flocks and herds and silver and gold, male servants and female servants, camels and donkeys. So God really has blessed him. And not only that, verse 36, Sarah, my master's wife, bore a son to my master when she was old. And to him, he's given all that he has. So he's a catch. He's the sole heir of all that wealth. He's really loading up, right, the the, the pitch here. Verse 37, my master made me swear, saying, you shall not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites in whose land I dwell. But you shall go to my father's house to my clan and take a wife for my son. Hint, hint, right? No pressure. I said to my master, perhaps the woman will not follow me. But he said to me, the Lord before whom I've walked will send his angel with you and prosper your way. You shall take a wife for my son from my clan and from my father's house. And then you will be free from my oath when you come to my clan. And if they will not give her to you, you will be free from my oath. I'm gonna skip over just a few verses here. He retells the whole story again. In other words, he wants to really put the pressure on and say, you know how Abraham said an angel was gonna go before me and and, and make it clear? Well, let me tell you what happened at the well. And he gives him the blow-by-blow with even more detail. And then he gets to verse 49, and here's the punchline. Now then, if you are going to show steadfast love and faithfulness to my master, tell me. And if not, tell me that I may turn to the right hand or the left. More pressure, right? Clearly, the Lord has shown steadfast love and and faithfulness to my master. Now, if you are gonna show that, why don't you tell me? Here's the big ask. Verse 50. Then Laban and Bethuel, Rebecca's father, answered and said, the thing has come from the Lord. We cannot speak to you bad or good. Behold, Rebecca is before you. Take her and go, and let her be the wife of your master's son, as the Lord has spoken. So Laban and his father agree, and they say yes. And what's amazing, stop, remember, the Lord, that's not the God that they worship. Remember back in Genesis 12 when God called Abraham, he wasn't worshiping the Lord, the God of heaven and earth. They had gods that they worshiped, and God spoke to him and called him and took him out and led him to this land, and now they're back, and and they're agreeing. It seems that Abraham's God is powerful and, and sovereign, and this does seem to be clearly of him. Probably didn't hurt in Laban's mind, that he had a lot of stuff as well. But they say, yes, looks like we're done here. No, verse 54, one last little hiccup. When they arose in the morning, he said, send me away to my master, let's go. And her brother and her mother said, let the young woman remain with us a while, at least 10 days, after that she may go. They start getting a little bit reluctant here. So he says to them, well, don't delay me, since the Lord has prospered my way. Send me away that I may go to my master. And they said, well, let us call the young woman and ask her. Oh, man, this might go south again. And she said, or they called Rebecca and said, will you go with this man? And she said, I will go. So they sent away Rebecca, their sister and her nurse, and Abraham's servant and his men. And they blessed Rebecca, and they said to her, our sister, may you become thousands of ten thousands, and may your offspring possess the gate of those who hate him. And then Rebekah and her young woman arose, rode on the camels and followed the man. And thus the servant took Rebekah and went his way. I think it's reminiscent of Genesis 12 when God called Abraham in the first place. In a similar way, the question's finally put to Rebekah directly. Will you leave your homeland and your country and, and, and everything behind? And will you accept this call to come and marry into this line of promise? And she says, I'll go. And just like Abraham, she travels back this time with the servant and, and the camels to, to be married. Scene four, final scene. Isaac takes Rebecca to be his wife, verse 62. Now, Isaac had returned from Beir Lahai Roy and was dwelling in the Geb. And Isaac went out to meditate in the field toward evening and he lifted up his eyes and saw, and behold, there were camels coming. And Rebecca lifted up her eyes and when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from the camel. It's so cinematic, isn't it? As the movies get it from. He looks across the field, and she looks across the field. It's got everything except them running to meet right in the middle, right? And they look up, and so she doesn't run, although she was a runner, right? We've already seen that from the chapter. But she lifted her up her eyes, and she said to the servant, verse 65, who is that man walking in the field to meet us? The servant said, it's my master. So she took her veil and covered herself, and the servant told Isaac all the things that he'd done, thankfully not here, or we would be here all day. Verse 67, Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah, his mother, and took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. And so Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. Just a pause, side note. I love that last note there, those two sentences, because sometimes we could think wrongly that if my life is supposed to yield to God's greater plans and purposes, that that means my life doesn't really count that it's just about God's plans and we're all just human cogs in the machinery of bringing him glory and, and bringing about his purposes. But that's not the way it works. It's not either or, it's both and. Being part of a bigger plan of God blessing the world is a blessing in and of itself and God blesses those who are part of it. And I love that. It's not just about getting a bride so then it can be Jacob and then it can be Israel and then it can be and then it can be Jesus. It's, but it's to bless Isaac even as well. He loved his wife and he found comfort in his grief as his mother was gone. How kind of God as he works his purposes out in our lives. Why wouldn't we want to be a part and entrust ourselves to him, even though it's not all about us? So here's the question then. That's what God was doing at that point in history to move this plan to bless all the families of the earth and he was faithful. Step there, Isaac needs a bride. But what about now? Well, think, in Genesis, at the point here that we've been at, even when the promised son Isaac is finally born, uh, is finally born to them, that's not the end. That's just the beginning of lots more promises to be fulfilled. It needs to become a family. And then it needs to become a nation that occupies the land, and then later, the seed of promise is finally gonna be born, Messiah has to come. But notice, even once Jesus comes, even once the, the, the promised seed is born, that's not the end of the story either, is it? No, he must grow up, and he lives a sinless life, the life that none of us have lived before God, And he has a ministry for years proclaiming the kingdom of God is at hand and calling people to turn from sin and recognize God has sent in me a solution, forgiveness for your sin, an answer to your fear of death. Your fear that when when I die, there's no more good plans for me. Even when Jesus comes, he's got to solve that problem. And he goes to the cross. The Son of God must suffer many things and then be killed, Jesus said, as a ransom for many for god to accept his innocent life in the place of our uh, sinful lives and give us forgiveness in jesus name but even the cross was not the end jesus raised him from the grave or god raised jesus from the grave showing payment was accepted in full and offering us resurrection hope that if we trust in the one who died for us and rose again even if we die we will rise again But the the plan still isn't finished. Even after the resurrection, there's more promises left unfulfilled, right? So then Jesus, before he ascends to the Father, he gathers his apostles together, and in Acts 1.8, he says this, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. The plan's not over yet. Jesus is entrusting and commissioning his apostles now and those who come to trust Jesus through them all the way down to us with a mission. And what is this mission? To be my witnesses. Here's point two. That's because if all the families of the earth are gonna be blessed through Abraham, through Jesus, then Jesus needs a bride. That's his plan. That's the gospel. That's why Jesus died and rose again. Now to send the 12 out and then his church out to gather people in from around the world, lost people to become his bride. That's a metaphor that the Bible uses. Paul in Ephesians 5 says that all along God's design in marriage, one man taking one woman and committing forever, until death do us part, to love and never forsake and to cherish and to love sacrificially. Paul says all along that's been a, a, a reflection and an echo and a pointer to a reality that was gonna come about that Jesus was gonna take not just a beautiful, attractive bride that was a good catch, but us and our sin and die for our sin, cover our shame, and then call us to himself to be collectively part of his bride his beloved that he'll never forsake. Paul thought this way so much that he even used this analogy. Listen to this verse in 2 Corinthians 11. He's talking to the Corinthian church. He had played a role in leading them to Christ and in helping them begin growing in Christ. And listen to what he says to them, the way he describes his role in evangelizing and discipling these Christians. He says, I feel a divine jealousy for you. Why? since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. How did Paul view proclaiming Christ and helping present people mature in Christ? Inviting people to become part of the bride. Just like Abraham's servant was commissioned, go bring back a bride for Isaac. The great commission to us is to say, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all the nations, baptizing and, and teaching them to obey all that I've commanded. And by doing so, you are gonna gather for me a glorious bride. I'm gonna make her glorious. And one day, I will return. And the, the, the end is described with the analogy, the marriage supper of the Lamb. The celebration of Jesus with his bride forever. Forever. So what are the purposes that God wants us to grasp the heights of and to be part of in our generation? It's this. We sang it in that song, that the church be built and the earth be filled with his glory. And we can be as confident as Abraham that he will do this through us grace, La Mirada, and he will through his church in the world until that is accomplished. Because Jesus, with the same confidence Abraham said, Abraham said, he'll send his angel before you and you shall take a bride. Jesus essentially said said the same to Peter. He says, I'm gonna build my church, Peter, on you and these 12, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. We have the same confidence. God will keep all his promises accomplish all his purposes through us. Don't you wanna be part of that? Why would we not want our little life, our vocation, our friendships, our relationships, our our life, our, our service in this community to be folded into that, to invite people to be part of this bride, to be loved forever by Jesus undeservedly but everlastingly. That's what we're called to do. This last week I spotted a I was going to say a tweet, a retweet, a pastor I don't follow on on Twitter, but someone I do follows and and shared this. A pastor named Duke Kwan, who's at a church in Washington, D.C., on Thursday posted this. He said, I had the privilege of leading someone to faith in Christ this afternoon. Simply put, there's no greater joy or honor. Makes me eager for more. May the lamb that was slain receive the reward of his suffering. I read that and I just thought, me too. Me too. Does that make you want to say "me too? Does that make you eager for, for more to eager to be part of seeing that happen? Well, then we need to pray. We need to pray and ask the Lord to do this through us. We want to be a church where every member, each member, urgently, eagerly and bountifully proclaims Christ until the church is built and the earth is filled with His glory. I want us to do that right now. We have time. Let's bow for a minute. I want to give you a minute or two quietly to pray. How is the Lord helping you this morning grasp the heights of his plans for us as a church and you as a part? Talk to the Lord about that in prayer for a moment. And in a couple of minutes, I wanna ask two or three or four of you to pray out loud so we can all hear and pray for us grace here in La Mirada that the Lord would accomplish these kind of purposes through us. So pray silently for a minute and then I'll, I'll invite us to pray all together. Amen to all that, Lord. I, I just ge- pray that you'd give us as a church the spirit of this servant who in faith stepped out. Lord, I think of William Carey saying, expect great things from God, attempt great things for God in that order. So Lord, we're praying, expecting you to do great things. I pray you'd give us boldness then to to attempt great things from you and to step out and that, that, like uh, was prayed, prayed over here that we would bear much fruit, Lord. Um, We look forward with anticipation to moments like in this chapter of of bowing our heads in worship and thanking you and praising you as the the Lord, the sovereign God of heaven and earth um, for adding to your bride, filling your church uh, and using us in the process, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.